0: well good morning and welcome welcome to our online audience great to have uh, you with us as well today if you're uh, turning in your bibles do find first timothy chapter 5 and verse 17 first timothy five seventeen. if you are uh, wanting to use one of our bibles here uh, turn to page 962 962 In this passage, Paul is writing to Timothy uh, about the important role of church leaders, elders, pastors, overseers, whatever name or term we use. The health of the leadership of a church obviously is key to the health and integrity and effectiveness of the church as a whole. And so, a basic, very important point that this, or issue this passage addresses is, who's in charge of those in charge? Where's the accountability of those church leaders? Because the church is not exactly like a a political thing, is it? Where it's, uh, the accountability is, you can vote a guy out, you know, just hold an election. If you compared to a business that's not quite the same either because you know business has owners accountability has to do with customers and workforce one of the best comparisons of a church would be a family but in terms of accountability who's the parents and where's the accountability so some of these illustrations fall short so who's overseeing the overseers uh, here's the short version, in case you, are, you have a short attention span. The whole church is, in a real sense, responsible, but the burden of the overseeing of leaders is other leaders. And if that sounds a bit precarious, or like, well, then you got kind of a good old boys club, you have to realize the distinction of the church from every other organization, is the character issue. In any other organization, the issue might be control and balance of power. But the integrity and the effectiveness of a church will always depend upon the issue of character. And so you will see that strain throughout the New Testament, that accountability is about character. So the ultimate accountability will always be before God, And yet we need to look at, then, how does that work in terms of accountability on earth? This passage gives us a little window into a couple of, I guess, really practical areas of church life and church leaders. A a quick summary would be, this passage is talking, A, about being fair by paying elders who invest extensive time in ministry. Secondly, being fair when elders are accused, that's the accountability issue. Finally, the importance of going slow then when you select uh, elders or leaders. I've been using the terms elders, pastors, and overseers interchangeably because the scripture does. So when you hear those terms, just kind of take them synonymously. Uh, Overseer is like what they do, they're in charge. Elder is supposed to reflect uh, the spiritual maturity. And the term pastor is really the word shepherd, the responsibility to care spiritually for others. So starting in chapter 5, verse 17, it says, The elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, especially those whose work is preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, do not muzzle the ox while it is treading out the grain, and The worker deserves his wages. If I were to make a list of the awkward topics that a pastor could preach on, somewhere near the top of that list would be the subject of why you should pay pastors. Uh, That's where today's passage begins, but really, embedded in this first passage is a very important point about the overall accountability issue. What's the opening term in the passage. Elders plural. Elders plural, one of the uh, often ignored or neglected biblical principles of a New Testament church is that is the concept of the plurality of elders that is responsible for the church. What can too often happen is that there is a corporate or CEO Mentality, maybe even ownership mentality where there's one guy who calls the shots often the solo or senior pastor plurality, plurality does not mean that we can ignore the idea that a, a uh, team needs a head coach and I understand the role of being a point man if you will as a senior pastor But what matters in this issue of the biblical example of plurality of elders is that it is a team of leaders, not a sole individual leader, who bears the responsibility ultimately for the church. And that is how we've sought to practice that in accordance also with our church constitution. There was recently a book on this subject written by a longtime pastor, Dave Harvey, called The Plurality Principle here's a here's a phrase from it a a sentence from it god gave us plurality because he's a big fan of humility gave us plurality because he's a fan of humility the idea being that teams have to submit to one another to make decisions they have to hear each other out and you can't always get your way A blog this past week, another David, David Mathis made the case about uh, the importance of a team being responsible to lead a church. Here's three things. You're less likely to pursue one man's selfish ideas. Two, you're more likely to have disagreement of a good kind that would lead to better, wiser decisions, kind of like God's ideal for the family would be two adults who have to figure out decisions coming from different perspectives. And then see um, a team can share the load and find people with gifts to do what they're best at. I know one example was that when uh, we came here years ago, I I found out that I did not have to manage the business of the church. And that was a huge relief. I didn't have experience in that, and uh, other people have handled that part of it underlying these kind of issues is the fact that when there's a team that shares authority there is in fact much greater accountability because any individual on the team is responsible to the others now i realize that um, most of you would know the pastors that are that work here uh, nate seth and myself but not all of you know the other guys so Here are their pictures. I gave them a chance to replace whatever picture I found, so it is what it is. But these are the guys. uh, Most of you uh, know some, or many of you would know all of them. Some, these are new to you. Looks like Chuck's in charge because he's got the tie. (laughs) But uh, we seek to function then as a team as we meet on a monthly basis of course some of these guys you you may hardly know because they're not the guys that are that are up front but I want you to know they love Christ and they love the church and they take the responsibility of leading here very seriously now back to the first phrase the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor and we soon get the idea that he indeed is saying that the church should be fair in Paying some of those who invest significant time. Uh, The directing of affairs is the the management or leadership of ministry. If our purpose is to make disciples, it takes leadership to disciple, coordinate, train, lead, and care. In those sense, uh, kind of the nuts and bolts of the administration of ministry. And then secondly, it says those who work hard at preaching and teaching. Earlier, Timothy had made this distinction between preaching and teaching. They're both you know, communication-type uh, ministries. Uh, preaching seems to emphasize truth application, what someone should be doing. Teaching is more about truth content. What does it say? But obviously both are important. If it's in there, we need to know what it is, but we also need to know then preaching, how it applies and you know, what should we do about it, those things. So Paul's point overall is that those who lead well and invest significant time in the leading uh, the, in, and in the teaching and the, the preparation hours that are involved should be compensated financially. If you put yourself in the first century uh, context Everybody came uh, as in the new, new church. They came with some kind of business or, or trade or something that they did. But they found as they began to see, be a part of a church leadership that was growing that they simply couldn't do both things. And so gradually, gradually, and God had inspired a couple different places here to say, no, there's a time when you relieve some of those elders from their need to support themselves financially to be more full-time. So that's what this double honor is about. It's interesting that, to, to describe this as double honor because he's really doing a word play with the word honor. Uh, honor is used, first of all, most typically, like we use it, to, to pay some respect, if you will. 1 first, uh, first Thessalonians 5.12 uh, calls on the church to uh, respect those who are in charge of you spiritually in the Lord. But then, at the same time, in this little word play, he's using honor with the other definition In fact, back just last week in our study in chapter 5, verse 3, it says give honor to widows who are truly in need, which means what? Financially support them. So he says double honor in in the case of some uh, of of the elders. And we typically call those staff or pastoral staff or something like that. And then he quotes two scriptures to clarify that. That it's, 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 He didn't just start this. It goes back to the Old Testament where uh, Moses had said, uh, do not muzzle the ox while he is treading out the grain. So, thinking back to the agricultural world of, uh, of the time, when they had uh, uh, cut the, the stalks of wheat, they would bring it together and they would need to have it threshed by oxen. Now, We contrast that a little bit. Here's a modern combine threshing grain. That's actually my my brother's outfit there. And today, there are actually still people doing it like they did it in the Old Testament. There's a picture I understand from Ethiopia, got it on Wikipedia, that there are still oxen doing it. So they're, they're stomping the grain, and as they either go in circles or however they, they do that, then they have to move the cattle away and, and pick up the loose straw and, and, and clean the grain. And the point is that you don't muzzle the animal, the, your livestock, while they're actually working for you. And the, the, uh, the same, the, the parallel is, is for uh, paying some. And the second one is the worker deserves his wages. It's interesting to just note that uh, he says this is a my second scripture quotation this quotation however comes from a new testament book the book of luke and these are the words of jesus so already paul is quoting luke as scripture even though the book of luke was probably just written uh, less than a decade before uh, Paul wrote this to Timothy, so that's kind of a sideline, but the point is that Jesus was talking to his, this team of 20, 72 disciples that he sent out in pairs, and he said, on your way, you should gladly accept the support of people who are willing to host you and feed you and, and take care of you, and because the worker is worthy of his wages. Jesus is the one that said it, and that's the only place we, we see it in Scripture, in First Corinthians nine, uh, the city of Corinth, the church at Corinth was kind of a problem sometimes in a variety of ways. One of those ways, as you study the background of the book of, of books of First and Second Corinthians, is that they didn't like the idea of supporting Paul, and yet Paul cared for them so much that he was working in ministry for them. And so, because that pay thing was controversial. He said, "I'm not taking anything from you so that I can bring you the gospel free of charge." but as he wrote the first letter to Corinthians, he actually is defending why he would have the right to receive funds and really kind of setting the table for those who would serve in that church and others after that. First Corinthians 9: "Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? You get paid to be a soldier." Who plants a vineyard and does not eat of its grapes? Who tends a flock and does not drink the milk? For it is written in the law of Moses, do not muzzle an ox while it's treading out the grain. Is it about oxen that God is concerned? Surely he says this for us, doesn't he? If we have sown spiritual seed among you, is it too much? If we reap a material harvest from you. In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who preach the gospel should receive their living from the gospel so Paul, when making a case like this, makes you ask, but he says, but he goes on to say after that, but I'm not going to take anything from you. So how did Paul support himself? You go to uh, Acts chapter 18 and you find that what he did is he went back to his trade of, what is his trade? Someone know? Making tents, yeah. And that's where that phrase tent maker comes from, where many people through the years have supported themselves so that they can be in ministry Tent making or whatever trade or business might be required. Uh, This couple, Aquila and Priscilla, were also with him. Maybe they were a more established business couple, a Christian host for the church, and Paul worked with them. But it's interesting to note in Acts 18 that as soon as uh, some of his partners in ministry, Silas and Timothy, came with a gift from Macedonia, which is gifts from the Philippian church that then Paul was able to give more full-time to ministry, even there in Corinth. So that's kind of the, the pay background. Who, who decides who gets paid and, and how much? Uh, clearly, uh, other church leaders need to be involved in that. Uh, one of the principles we've learned through the years from the New Testament is that uh, functions in the New Testament are given... Forms are often flexible, right? Functions, this is what you need to do, but how you do it is often given a lot of freedom. I think that's sometimes why the New Testament leaves out a lot of the details that we kind of wish were there, so you just God, just tell me how to do it. But the how is often left to us. Just a little bit of a background. At Open Door, um, at the annual meeting in, in January, the church membership votes to uh, approve the the prepared budget of anticipated expenses for the years. And in that budget are the uh, recommended salaries and and benefits that the church board then recommends as part of that budget. I just need to say on behalf of myself and Seth and and Nate and, and Carla, the staff here that we are very grateful for how the board and obviously you as a church have taken care of us financially uh, through the years. Um, it is a, an extreme blessing and something that not always has taken place around the world to be able to be fully supported and devote ourselves to this ministry. There's been a lot of tent makers, part-timers through the years, and uh, this is certainly a blessing and a, and a luxury to be well cared for. The double honor supposedly that we have as pastors does not however put us like spiritually on a pedestal so when it says that it's not like you got single honor we got double honor if anything it would seem that those who like paul ministered free of charge volunteered would be the ones deeply honored by god and it is It would be a crazy guess to try to see how much of the ministry of Open Door is paid and how much is actually the hours upon hours, and some of you, a lot of hours that you have devoted in the past in the present and will in the future for this ministry. Uh, Ephesians 4 talks about how the, the pastors and teachers and leaders are responsible to equip people for the work of ministry. And again, we're grateful that the people of Open Door have taken that very seriously. And that is how the ministry is done. It's not just paid. As as Paul moves on into the um, next section, another good detail, it is specifically about accountability. He says, be fair not only about pay, but be fair when elders are accused. Verse 19, do not entertain an accusation against an elder unless it is brought by two or three witnesses. Those whose sin are to be rebuked publicly so that the others may take warning. So there is no spiritual pedestal, and pastors and elders are made of the same spiritual stuff, and it becomes even more important and uh, there's a greater sense of accountability when it is a leader that is falling to sin. But be fair. First of all, it's, a, it's saying don't, elders don't get a pass because of their position. In fact, James made this point of higher accountability. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. So don't just say, man, I really want to be up front. Just realize that comes with an additional weight And I believe this focus here is before God. Sometimes um, bosses or political leaders might get away with wrongdoing because of their position, using that position as leverage to get by with something. And this is a, a, a statement to the church and its leadership, make sure that's not how the church functions. In fact, you would hold them to a higher level of accountability. Uh, Again, if this is before God, that also means that there is not somehow uh, a boost in eternal rewards because somebody is a leader because there is actually a higher standard. There's a higher expectation. Um, Why should a teacher be more accountable? Think about it. If we are teaching and preaching the word of God consistently, we should actually be more aware of what it says and what it means to us. And so if, if uh, our degree of understanding has any weight, we would be held to a higher standard, so there's no excuse. Uh, but secondly, it would also be the fact that <clears throat> because of a leadership position, and we've seen this played out in so many sad ways, but also hopefully positive, that the leadership of a church affects the testimony Of the church, which is why there's the qualifications that we studied about in 1 Timothy 3 as well. But if somebody accuses an elder or pastor, then what do you do? Well, the first statement is do nothing unless there's two or three witnesses. In other words, one person makes a claim. Do nothing about it. Don't receive it. Don't accept it. Because here he's actually saying, use the accepted cultural understanding that you don't take something to a Jewish court unless there's two or three witnesses. Going back to Deuteronomy, where it was telling the nation of Israel how to handle uh, accusations. One witness is not enough to convict anyone accused of a crime or offense they may have committed a matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses you know that kind of principle still uh, is is effective in courts today then jesus actually used the same principle in the issue of church discipline which we actually looked at in this book remember chapter 1 verse 20 and uh, took us to matthew 18 where one of the steps is this if he does not listen that is to the, the the confrontation or rebuke Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established. How? By the evidence of two or three witnesses. This is, this, is, this is standard procedure. So if an elder is accused of something serious, make sure it is substantiated. Because otherwise it could be someone that had a personal grudge over something maybe unrelated and irrelevant. It could be someone that had malice towards Uh, the church or even to God and and the testimony of the church unfortunately social media makes these kind of accusations radically simple to start and very difficult to put to rest but if it takes place this is what the church should do now what kind of things what kind of things would be an accusation that that needs to be handled i just you know if if one, of you come, if one of you says you know I saw a pastor sit at the hardware store and he was kind of grumpy today I don't think that's it it could be I was working on plumbing <laughs> and it was my third trip how many agree it takes three trips to do anything plumbing in the house I, I actually had that substantiated by the clerk on my third trip a couple different times oh yeah if it's plumbing it always takes three trips so that, now, if I'm grumpy, you can pray for me. But maybe don't take it to the elders. But if there's something serious, if there's something that is a disqualifying standard, First Timothy 3, Titus chapter 1, if it's something that is going to damage the reputation of Christ or this church, which damages the reputation of Christ, in a substantial way, it needs to be handled. So if you do or must entertain this accusation against a, a leader, and there are two or three witnesses to substantiate, then what do you do? Those who sin must be rebuked publicly so that others take, may take warning. This is similar to church discipline overall that Jesus prescribed in Matthew 18, because eventually that would become a public rebuke but do you notice the difference if you know that process in Matthew 18 it works something like this if your brother offends you if there is a sin issue you just go one on one and hopefully if the brother confesses and repents, says you've won your brother, it's over and it stays private no one else has to know even if it was serious if he rejects it or says it's not true then you go with two or three witnesses to establish it and if it's true then and he confesses and repents it may stay a very small circle privately it's only if he rejects that that it goes to the church and it would become public in the sense of congregational church discipline what does it say about the elders though if it's substantiated it's one strike One strike, there is no privacy, and it's public rebuke. Because supposedly he was examined by character to be above reproach. And so now already, because of his position, the impact on Christ and the church is established. So it's one strike, and they're out, and and would seem to include, of course, leaving the position That doesn't mean there isn't grace and there isn't transformation. So if a a spiritual or church leader confesses and repents, he is again right with God and fellowship is restored. Grace applies to all. And to whatever degree a serious sin would affect one's marriage or family, it would hopefully be a process by which there would be healing and counsel and health And restoration, but would that mean that the person can have his position back? It doesn't seem so. So that others may take warning. This is a painful but cleansing process when a church addresses sin, especially in its leadership. Verse 21 is the same issue. I charge you in the sight of God and Christ Jesus and the elect angels to keep these instructions about rebuking elders without partiality and to do nothing out of favoritism. The reason you have to make sure you're fair and applying this equally and it doesn't matter if it's your good friend or your kids are friends or he's actually your boss it has to be applied equally why because god the father jesus christ the son and the angels see what's going on now that might even surprise us because we we always knew that god sees all and knows all and this isn't saying that that uh angels, holy angels are omniscient and know everything that's going on but they can see and that's why they can be sent by God to, to do things on earth so understand the utmost importance that, that what happens on earth matters to heaven we, we, we sometimes are guilty even in spiritual things of only thinking horizontally you know well it only affects me which is probably never true or it just, that's my problem with my reputation, and we're just thinking this way? No, it matters in heaven, because we as Christians, and corporately, we as a church are assigned to do the work of heaven. That's what we do here. This, this matters eternally. And so because it matters in heaven, it matters what's happening here. Just take the example, why does Bentonville, Arkansas care what happens at Walmart in Sockville? Why does McDonald's corporate in Chicago care what happens at the Sockville and, and port stores? Because they've got their name. It affects the bottom line. It affects their reputation. And so if, executives there will deal with corruption on the local level by high, by firing people how much more when eternal things are at stake we we have to reestablish the seriousness of what we do here when we come together this this is this is an eternal gathering believers in Christ we're going to be together forever that's a good thing. We're not just a Christian club because these friends are better than other friends. I think they are. We, we don't get together just because we can do good things together that help people and keep us out of trouble. No, that can be true. But we get together together because the church is how God populates heaven. We go and make disciples. The church is how God prods us to stimulate one another to, do, to spiritual growth and to impacting others. And it all matters to heaven. So when there is a problem with the character, integrity of leadership, you need to take that seriously and handle it, even without favoritism, because it matters in heaven. It's a unique privilege to be a leader here, and uh, I, I love what I what I do, and I'm and I'm grateful for the double honor that I can actually do this for a living. I know the other guys feel the same, and I know that the guys in the board consider it a great privilege as well. But I, I would thank you for your understanding of the sense of weight and responsibility, um, accountability and scrutiny that needs to be a regular part of our life. And it means so much that you would pray for us and that you would prioritize that somehow and and I know many of you have I I deeply appreciate it so if an elder's reputation is important on earth and heaven and if sin is more serious because uh, we are leaders then it only stands to reason that the best way to avoid problems is to go slow in selecting elders If you're an employer, you know it's easier to hire than to fire. It might seem hard to hire right now, but it's even harder to fire. Verse 22, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands and do not share in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Now, verse 23 might surprise us. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses, Timothy. Verse 24, I think, returns to the subject. The sins of some men are obvious. Reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, the sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. Go slow, because so much is at stake. Don't be hasty laying on of hands. We saw that term earlier in chapter 4, verse 14, where Timothy is reminded that they laid hands on him, And we discussed that that is some kind of an official appointment or ordination to the ministry that Timothy was responsible for. And uh, it's a practice that's used today mostly for those in full-time ministry. It could well be that, that all elders went through that process, not just those who are paid. But don't be hasty in appointing elders. The next line, I think, is really part of the same sentence, and thus don't share in the sins of others, because... If you are selecting elders with character flaws and you are a part of that process of appointing them, then really you are sharing in and responsible and somehow for their sin. Leaders who help select other leaders are accountable for their choices. Again, it's not exactly prescribed how churches must do this, but we see, we can observe some ways that they did it. Paul appointed some elders... Titus 1.5, Paul authorized Titus at the church in Crete, authorized Titus to appoint elders. Both of those would have apostolic authority, unique to that day. But, But then outside of that, it seems that in a large part, it's the elders who would choose elders. But the involvement of the overall church would be pretty important because you're trying to establish if a man is above reproach. How do you find that out? It's obviously the input, uh, of somehow, of the rest of the church family. Again, function is in the New Testament, form is flexible. At Open Door, our Constitution spells out a process where if the existing church board, and our church board is elders and deacons together, if the existing church board determines we need more people on the board... Then we initiate a process where there is a small team uh, appointed by the congregation to examine the men of the church who are members to see uh, how they qualify in terms of 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, looking through that process. And then, based on that, the elders can present a name or names to the congregation to be voted on, because we're an American church, right? We vote. Uh, to be voted on to be appointed to the church board and this seems to be a, an appropriate way uh, a form that works for that uh, function it is highly likely and highly preferable that there would be at any time far more men qualified than it can actually serve so if there's another 10 20 or 40 men that are qualified biblically that's wonderful but there's just kind of hard to call a meeting every month with that many people. But really that list of qualifications, as we talked about, was, is really what every man should aspire to. That is, that's, what the, that's what God's doing in our life. So pursue those characteristics, even if it's not realistic that all uh, those qualified would be in a position like that. However, you would be found serving in the body of Christ in some way because... Of, of your faithfulness to Christ. Uh, so leaders are accountable and the church would be accountable for who it appoints. And so, Timothy, keep yourself pure. I mean, if you're, if you're the, the lead elder there in Ephesus, uh, overseeing kind of this process of choosing other leaders, then you got to be sure, Timothy, that you don't neglect your own sin nature and weaknesses. Trust me, we're in the same spiritual battle. Our leadership roles dare not give us any kind of false assurance that we're okay spiritually because of the position. If anything, we are a greater target of our enemy, and thus we covet your prayers. Character is brewed over time, so give it time where you get to know uh, a leader's family, uh, ministry, priorities, etc., Paul's going to get back to the subject of being careful, but verse 23 kind of surprises us parenthetically. I'm not sure. I don't think anybody's quite sure why Paul put it exactly right here, though Paul did give some personal advice at times. This one's medical. Stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Tells us a little bit about uh, Timothy's uh, struggle. Uh, Was this because Timothy was someone who abstained from alcohol entirely because of personal choice or conviction. And Paul said, uh, actually, you need to take some, some wine. It'll help you medically. Some scholars have even suggested that the statement before about keeping yourself pure is not about spiritual purity, but about uh, the, the need for pure... The water purity was a problem in the early days, of course. So there's this purification that is part of fermentation, so you would need it, that would be helpful to you. Not sure about that, but clearly this is a medical note, and I don't really think it proves anything for Christians who differ on their convictions about the moderate use of alcohol. That's an area where Christians can decide for themselves if that's okay, though clearly, scripturally, drunkenness is a a spiritual issue and spiritual problem. Verses 24 and 25, Paul continues to explain why churches should go slow. The sins of some men are obvious. As you're thinking of who is, is maybe someone who should be an elder a deacon in the church, the sins of some men are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them. The sins of others trail behind them. Picture a train. The first thing is obvious, the engine. But the whole train's got to go by until you, you see the, the caboose. Some people you will you will see their character flaws immediately, because the way you got to know them is, is, is some conversation, and they were obviously lying, or um, uh, you saw them lose their temper, um, they slurred their speech and smelled of alcohol when you met them, and so you knew right away there, there was a character problem, so that 's sometimes very obvious, but but some trail behind them like that caboose and 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 if you've got a caboose that's weaving around, eventually it can can make the rest of the train derail. So Timothy, take your time to, to know the reputation of someone. But here's the good news. In the same way, verse 25, the good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not cannot be hidden. So sometimes... You meet someone, and they go, man, that just seems like a godly man or woman, and you're exactly right. Your first impression was, was exactly right, and, and they, 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 were, they were authentic, and as you got to know them, they were solid. But then sometimes there are those hidden spiritual gems. Some, the good deeds are obvious. Other, others, if, if they are that good person that godly qualified person eventually that'll come out too and it could be that they didn't have the same outgoing personality of somebody else or they didn't have the the spiritual gifts that that put them up front where everybody says i want to be in their class kind of thing but if you got to know them you begin to realize the impact they were having on others spiritually And their character, their reputation, their impact sparkled. Timothy, you might be looking for that guy to be an elder, to be a deacon, to be someone leading. Because you can trust that they will be faithful 10, 20, and 40 years from now. So don't be in a hurry. Don't rely on first impressions, but be encouraged that God is always at work. And what he is doing is he's building character. Character. We've been privileged with 1 Timothy, I think, to like eavesdrop on a personal letter. It's a letter from a leader to a leader, Paul to Timothy. Yet God put it in all of our Bibles so that we would have a greater appreciation of the church, greater appreciation of what it means to grow in godliness and character. Because... Character, this, this application is for all, this goes beyond leaders, character is what matters. Character determines who you are, who you are to others, how you, your, your value to the church, and, and the value to the church, the impact to the community, the spread of the gospel, and the glory of God. And so you cannot over-prioritize who you are. Your character. I just want to close with a passage about leaders. As uh, I think Seth read before, this this is written about the same subject, but it's addressed to the whole church, not to a leader. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. And then he says, pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorable, honorably in all things. And that's, that's I guess, what the message that we would want to communicate from a leadership perspective. Uh, Seth, would you come and just uh, lead the congregation? Uh, it's a time of corporate prayer.